Richard Krauss, uh, your host, with the, who looks like he's about to be attacked by spiders uh, from directly behind him, is Chris Abel on the other end of the line. Hello, and hello. We are we uh, get together. Uh, we haven't been here for a couple of weeks, and that has been my fault. I apologize. Uh, but uh, we get together uh, once a week to discuss, you know, whatever is happening in the world that needs discussing. That's what we talk about, or at least whatever is happening in our world that needs discussing. And uh, uh, this week, uh, you know, so much has been written about After Earth, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, new film. Although, if you were to read the uh, advertisements, you'd never know it was a movie directed by the director of The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Science, because they really kept his name uh, far, far away from the advertising, which I thought was kind of an unusual move until I remembered back to a movie, well, his last couple of movies haven't done well, his last few movies haven't done well. Uh, but I remembered being in an audience uh, in a trailer for a movie called The Devil came up. Do you remember The Devil? And it was, just let me look and make sure that I have that title correct. Well, it, there's, a, there's been a few movies that kind of have the word devil in it that I'm trying to think of which one. Well, this was actually an, uh, an M. Night Shyamalan produced movie. Oh, okay. Then, yeah, I kind of missed that one. Yeah, this was uh, two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. It was yeah. just called Devil, not The Devil. It was just called Devil. Right. And uh, it was, uh, you know, um, not directed by M. Night. It was directed by um, a guy called John Eric Dowdle. And, uh, you know, no one really knows who he is, uh, but he's directed a few things. He's got a movie called The Coup uh, coming out in 2014. But... Uh, the thing that was interesting to me about this is when the trailer came on in the movie theaters, you know, it looked okay. It was sort of atmospheric. Chris Messina is in it. You know, people are like, ooh, I like that guy. Ooh, hey. Oh, and then M. Night Shyamalan's name comes up, and people were, like, pointing and laughing. And, and like, all of a sudden, this went from being kind of, hey, I might want to check that out, too. Oh, my God. It's another one of his movies. And so that's very likely why his name didn't appear in the advertising anywhere for a big Will Smith uh, movie. What could have been or should have been, I guess, a big tentpole release, but uh, yeah, it was not to be. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, uh, it's astonishing that he's still being given the chance to make these big budget films. I had always assumed that after the, the first couple of failures that he had, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's always a time in a director's career where they have a couple of experimental things. They're, they're daring, they do something, and it doesn't quite work out. But I had always assumed that he would kind of just retreat and start to make smaller films, which probably well, would serve his, his creativity a lot better. Why studios keep giving him millions of dollars to make these movies is, is, I think, something that's on the mind of every film geek and film fan out there. Well, from what I understand, and I'm just looking at my bookshelf now because <laughs> I have uh, the book that was sort of, I think, the beginning of people's uh, derision towards M. Night. And I'll just see if I can uh, find it. But I think... Um, uh, I've read in an interview recently where his next movie, I think, is going to be like a micro-budget uh, character study of something or other. And I think maybe it's a good thing. I mean, you don't have to make, unless you're Steven Spielberg and you have a very proven track record and you are someone who thinks in a you know grand scale. Steven Spielberg doesn't make small movies. You know, he doesn't make intimate character-driven dramas. He makes big, you know, epic style films so unless you're him 
you know, or Michael Bay, or maybe Roland Emmerich, you know, whose movies, generally speaking, make okay money, and they, you know, they they know how to control large sums of money and big epic plots and things. Um, it's okay to zip back and forth and make smaller movies and and you know express yourself in a way. It could just simply be that M Night is not uh, a, a filmmaker who needs to make huge movies because if After Earth is any indication. Uh, you know, for my money, virtually everything, every choice that you could make that would sink this as a big <laughs> whole movie was made. And I knew that probably what they were trying to do was do something uh, a little different for a big summer movie. The, let, let's take a more serious tact. Let's not have Will Smith going, oh, hell no, and doing his usual kind of very physical, charismatic thing. Let's, you know, push him in a different direction. Let's try different things is probably what they were saying. And what we'll end up with, hopefully, is something that's very unique something that stands out in a, in a summer where you've got Man of Steel and the big Star Trek movie coming out and, and you know, all that stuff, all these big kind of action-heavy special effects movies. You know, you have to make yourself heard somehow, and After Earth is not based on a video game or a comic book or a novel or anything that pre-existed, uh, unless maybe you've read, if you've read Dianetics, Maybe, and I will. I will suggest that it's possibly there is some basis for its source material in there somewhere. Well, and but, that was. But I, I think they tried to make something that was going to stand out, and instead they made something that uh, does not hold up. Well, I guess that's that's sort of the question that I, I'd been pondering. Was going to put to you: Is this a bad M Night movie, or is this a bad Will Smith movie? And that's based on what you just said. I'm now trying to understand, is this a case of that this was a movie that Will Smith, he apparently wrote. Uh, he has uh, been a major part of the produ producer on it, that this was something that he had come up with and brought to Sony. And it was a case of trying to find a director that he could work with. And M. Night just happened to be the best candidate for Will Smith to work with. Or is this really uh, yet another turkey from the, the, the mind of M. Night? Uh, you know, or is it a mixture of both? Who, who really, whose vision are we, we sort of being disappointed with here? Well, I think the truth lies somewhere right down the middle. I mean, I, I have a feeling that M. Night, uh, at this point in his career, when he's dealing with such an enormous star, Will Smith, uh, I, I, from what I understand, from what I've read, from uh, several off-the-record interviews that I've done with people that have worked with him closely, um, you know, nothing goes into a, a Will Smith movie that Will Smith doesn't want in the movie. And, you know, he's that guy. He's an enormous movie star. His name is uh, almost virtually guaranteed to get people in the theaters. It doesn't work every single time up, but there's no movie star that, that whose name is a, a, a virtual guarantee. But his as is, is, uh, is as close as it gets to being uh, a name that will guarantee you a lineup around the block. And I will tell you that After Earth, um, despite, I, I thought, kind of a spotty uh, pre-release publicity campaign. Now, Will Smith was popping up here and there. There were ads in the newspapers. There was that, But there wasn't that huge push that I might have expected uh, from a movie that was this expensive and, you know, have stars Will Smith and his son. Um, uh, I went to see it with an audience, with a, with a regular paying audience, and it was packed. I saw it on a Thursday night. I missed the press screening because I was out of town. And uh, so I went with the, uh, to a 10 o'clock show on the uh, Thursday 
night that it opened, the first show, and it was ram-packed. And interestingly enough, though, the movie, I think, you know, when you have a big star like Will Smith, now you see this all the time if you watch an audience that's, that's watching a big movie like this. Um, the audience was on side. They were like, ooh, there's Will Smith. We like Will Smith. There's even a couple of like, we like Will Smith when he comes out on stage for the, or on screen for the first time. And then it shifted. And by the middle of the movie, people are talking back to the screen, which normally would bunk the hell out of me, but it was more entertaining than anything that was happening on the screen. And uh, there was just general kind of like disbelief in the audience. And, you know, it, because it's, it, it just quite simply is a movie that doesn't really work. It doesn't hold together particularly. You take away so much of, you know, Smith's charisma. You, you make everyone speak with these funny accents that kind of sound like they're uh, Rolf Harris imitating uh, General Patton. You, 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 you uh, have bad guys called Ursas, not bad guys, they're these big genetically engineered creatures that hate humans and can smell fear. And you, you have them, and then you don't really show them to us. You do, but you don't really show them to us in a way that makes it look appealing. You bring in really crappy CGI. You have Jaden Smith doing uh, eyebrow acting and, you know, his two expressions, panic and fear, which are kind of the same thing, you know? And so it all adds up to a really... Uh, not particularly interesting night of the movies. And it's not bad in uh, the way that you would expect something like uh, 10,000 years BC to be, which was kind of so bad that it was kind of almost enjoyable. You know, this is just um, a misfire, a huge, very expensive misfire. And you, it's kind of fascinating from a you know critic's point of view to sit back and just see how wrong how absolutely wrong you can get stuff but uh it doesn't make it any more interesting really to you know as just as a general viewer yeah i mean they did a massive um budgeting push i read that they spent almost 100 100 million dollars just on trying to promote it oh well, uh, see, that, that's not well I mean, that is, I mean, I would say that's not a lot of money. That is, that's a lot of money. hundred million bucks by anyone's uh, estimation is a lot of money. But I've been told that the movie costs 200 million bucks. Who really knows, right? I don't know, right. but this is what I've heard. And typically speaking, you spend half the budget, again, on, on P&I, on prints and advertising and, and all that stuff, P&I. And so that's, you know... 100 million bucks wouldn't surprise me. And, you know, you're dealing with, you know, a, a huge star again. So, you know, Will Smith doesn't fly couch. You know, he flies in a private jet and from they did it around the world tour. So, I mean, it, all this stuff just adds up to a great deal of money. Yeah, well, and they had two apps uh, tied into the, the movie, which is astonishing because regularly you get maybe one on a big tent pole movie. Right, right, right. But they had two, and they were charging money for both of those apps, which is odd. Most people refuse to buy for a movie app. It should be promoting the movie. shouldn't have to right. pay money. But it looked like um, the, the, of the two apps, there's one. It's a storybook that's narrated by Jaden Smith. The other one is more of a traditional video game based on the movie. But right. a lot of it seems to be much like the movie and very experimental right. in nature. Uh, the, the interviews that I've read that involve Will Smith, there's one that he's being mocked a lot for because in it, he says at heart, I'm a physicist. Yeah. Yeah. Which gets and, a lot of people uh, uh, making fun of him for that one. Oh yeah. I, I think, 
in those interviews, I mean, you get the impression of a man who uh, is trying to be very erudite and intellectual in what he's trying to do. He seems to be establishing this brand. He's got himself, his son, Jada Pinkett Smith. They're now involved in anything any member does. They're, they're hands-on. Uh, his son describes his, his dad as always sitting at his computer watching TED Talks and, and trying to feed his mind with very it, – it, it, listening to Will Smith unfortunately comes off a bit of as a pseudo-intellectual, that he seems to have taken on the trappings of wanting to surround himself with stuff that he feels has deeper meaning rather than – you know maybe he doesn't feel respectful for the stuff he's done in the past that has made him a star. He doesn't want to do the winks to the camera. He doesn't want to do the genre stuff. He's now trying to be – artistic listen i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fault any actor who who uh you know is looking to try something different who's looking to i mean you know one of my complaints about will smith movies is that when you are when you see will smith in a movie he's going to be the hero and nothing really bad will happen to him nothing catastrophic will happen to him he may get injured but he's unless it's the movie seven pounds where and this is a big spoiler uh um, he dies at the end of it. Um, but you know, that was a very different kind of Will Smith movie. Um, others than that, other than that though, you know, if, 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 if he gets injured, he's going to be better. He's going to get better. He's going to be the hero by the end of it. And that has been a huge complaint of mine about his, because there's no danger in his movies. There's no real, you know, that really nothing bad is going to happen to him. And so it takes away, uh, you know, some of the edginess, some of the tension, some of the conflict that you might have as a viewer watching a Will Smith movie. Having said that, uh, and, and I like that. Maybe he wants to expand beyond that. I listen. I'm all for you know branching out, trying to do something different. Uh, but this movie um, is so far to the other side of that, um, and and just kind of like not not convincing. Will Smith is a charismatic guy, and I think he's a good actor. And I think that you know perhaps this was just. I'm not going to chalk it up as a mad well, I mean, it, it is a failure, I think, but it's a misfire. For my money, it's a misfire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he, uh, he attempted something different, and it didn't work. Now, when Men in Black 4 comes along and Bad Boys 5 comes along and all that stuff, those movies will make a huge amount of money, and they will buy him enough goodwill so that he could try again at another big budget experimental film. Not that this is really experimental, but you know what I mean, where they push the envelope a little bit. But, you know, getting back to what you say about yeah, him considering himself a bit of a physicist and all that stuff, his whole career has been based on patterns. And this is what he was talking about in that interview in Vulture, where he, he, he says, you know, if you look at life, you can break it all down to patterns and blah, blah, blah. This is how I live my life. This is how I've raised my kid, you know, taught my kids to believe this. Years and years and years ago, when he was an up-and-coming movie star, because you remember, you know, rap star first, music star first, and then the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air after that, very successful television show, and that likely could have been it for Will Smith, you know, as it has been for others. You know, you, it's pretty rare that you go on from sitcom success to big screen success. Tom Hanks has done it. A few others have done it. But, you know, to become so huge afterwards is, is unlikely. But apparently what he did is he studied all the movies that had been in the top 10 for the last 10 years previous to that, saw what they had in common, saw patterns in them, and then geared his choices to the movies that he was going to take around what those patterns were. So in a way, it was like he was trying to develop some really rudimentary 
algorithm to figure out what was going to be successful. And, you know, you, I mean, it worked. For him, it worked. I mean, I, you know, I don't believe that there is any algorithm. There's a few people, Ryan Kavanaugh and a few others, who believe that they can figure out if a movie is going to be successful simply by, you know, studying huge amounts of market research and trying to, you know, uh, pander to people's likes and dislikes. Um, but I, and I don't believe it's really possible, except for Will Smith seems to have done it for a very long time, and he was very successful at it. Right. Well, and I, but I guess there's a difference between um, being superstitious in the sense of saying that you see patterns and being a mathematician, which is not necessarily right. just looking for patterns. I mean, science is about coming up with a guess and then testing that guess and seeing whether you know it works or whether it's wrong. You can never be right. You can only test yourself to be wrong. So it, when he talks about it, there is laughter amongst um, <laughs> fans oh, of science and physics because it doesn't quite it, – it's almost hollow. He comes off, frankly, in the interviews if he's, he's striking a pose. He's trying to appear to be smarter. It's like somebody wearing a pair of spectacles because they want to be taken you know, more seriously rather than actually someone who sounds like they've spent time learning the, the thing that they want to talk about. Right, right. Well, just looking up here, uh, and let Shyamalan – there were two things. The Man Who Heard Voices, that's the book. Uh, this was a, a sort of a, a tell-all that came out when he was uh, uh, to publicize his work on um, The Lady in the Lake. Right, yes. Yeah, and and it, it exposed him, or, or the, and this is what the cover looks like. <laughs> um, it, 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 and it's on my bookshelf somewhere. I just can't find it. Um, but it, 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 it showed him as someone who uh, was very controlling, was very set in his ways, didn't particularly care what the studios thought, who was paying him money, all that sort of thing. So part of, I think, you know, this sort of schadenfreude that seems to be happening about M. Night, uh, I think comes from this uh, personality, uh, this persona that was developed by, you know, himself, by by writers, by whoever was profiling him um, on, uh, in print and on television, that he was sort of above the fray, that he was really smart and he was kind of a genius. He's the new Hitchcock. He's that. But, and then his movie started tanking. And all of a sudden, you know, like you're only as good as your last movie. And, you know, in his case, you have to go back two or three or four movies to find a successful one. And I think that the, he's gotten beaten up uh, in the process, to a certain extent, by you know, I, I talked about it a little bit in my review on television, that you know he seems to have lost the plot a little bit. But I am looking forward to, and I would be interested to see uh, if he made a very small movie, went back to his roots, and made a very small movie, uh, and and to see you know if he still can figure out how to tell a story properly with great pacing and you know. I don't care about a twist necessarily, although no. <laughs> what he's what he's famous for. Um, but it, it would be interesting to me to see whether or not he can still do it, and I think he can. You know, I don't. I, I just think that it, it seems to me like he's someone who success came to uh, enormous success came to quickly. Although he had made uh, a couple of films before The Sixth Sense that nobody ever talks about anymore, but The Sixth Sense was, it was so huge that I think uh, he got pushed into a direction that he knew that wasn't suitable for him. I don't know that, and particularly after seeing After Earth, I don't think that he is a uh, an epic filmmaker. I think that he should stick to doing something else, and maybe it'll be great. I hope so. Right. 
Well, I mean, I just, I guess it's, it's astonishing that he continues to get these opportunities to do this in an industry that tends to be quite severe on that. There are lots of great directors, talented directors who did wonderful films. And then suddenly that was it, you know, one or two that didn't quite work out. Alex Cox, I mean, you know, uh, Repo Man, fantastic yeah. movie. And then because the way of the gun didn't go very well, yeah. he's, he's now scrambling to try to get the opportunity to make oh. other movies. David Cronenberg is always struggling to try to make his next film. So it must be astonishing for people both who work in the industry and those of us who are just fans watching to go, how, how does this, you know, here's Will Smith, Mr. Numbers man. And yet he still chose M night to be the guy to come in and do this movie. That is just, it's just head shaking crazy. I don't understand it. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that though you have to, uh, um, you know, in the case of somebody like David Cronenberg, who, you know, has had struggles getting movies made. I don't know that he does right now, you know, because we're, he's, he's, uh, you know, after making, uh, uh, you know, a history of violence and Eastern promises and things, I think it got a little easier for me. He was taking meetings with Tom Cruise and people like that. Cosmopolis might not have helped his cause much in terms of box office, but he's making oh. another movie right now with Robert Pattinson. So, you know, this not a guy that lacks for work, but he's also, uh, Cronenberg is someone who is uncompromising in the kind of movies that he makes. And so, you know, you don't have Cronenberg saying, Yes, I'll make a, a movie that, you know, I don't really have that much to do with, like a director for hire gave with, with Will Smith. You know, Cronenberg uh, was offered, after the success of The Fly and The Dead Zone and things like that, all sorts of things came his way. And one of them was Flashdance, if you can believe it. And uh, I asked him, I said, so, you know, I was interviewing him once, I said, what kind of movie would Flashdance have been had you actually directed it? And he said, it would have been a huge failure. Is what it would have been, and uh, I asked him about the uh, uh, the second Star Wars film, and he was offered that as well and turned it down. So you know, M Night and Cronenberg to me seem like two different people. You know, Cronenberg uh, oh, will not take a paycheck film, whereas apparently M Night will, and maybe try and put his own stamp on it. But uh, but you know, this had this worked, had this been an enormous success. People would be going about M. Night Shyamalan. He's a guy's a genius. He's redeemed himself. He's he he took a risk. He's doing something with bigger movie stars than he's ever. I mean, Will Smith is is the absolute top of the heap in terms of power in Hollywood in, in, in terms of actors. You know, he's he he managed to do that and make a great movie. He could have written his own ticket after this had this been a good movie, but unfortunately, it wasn't. Yeah, I'll include a, a link to a video that's very interesting that involves the lady in the lake. Uh, it's a tour of one of the big special effects company and specifically the company that worked on that film. Right. And what's funny about it is they become outspoken in a way that you professionally normally shouldn't. You know, typically uh, people in the industry, if you talk about movies that didn't quite go very well, they go, oh, it was a shame. And we tried this or we tried that. Uh, they're pretty ticked off about that particular film. They took the opportunity to showcase the monster that they had made. And they said, we spent all this time making this, this, fantastic creature which they felt in their opinion is the best one that they've made in the history of the company and you know they're biting their tongues as they say unfortunately M. Night decided that it would be more um, it would have more presence if they always kept it in the dark you never actually got to see it and you could see that the by the looks on their faces they're never going to work with M. Night again and so that becomes uh, again, I'm just going to stick up for, for M. Night a little bit here. And listen, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, don't get me wrong here. No. You know, but uh, in terms of that kind of thing, 
it happens. You know, in terms of that kind of thing in movies, uh, and you know, what you have is a director who has a, a, a vision. What you want when you're making a movie is a, is a director that has strong opinions and a vision. Um, what you want is someone who's willing to try things. And, and, you know, they may have thought it was the coolest monster they had ever made, but clearly M. Night went a different way. And this happens all the time. Scripts go through rewrite after rewrite after rewrite after rewrite in the original you know, people that may have, you know, started the, the chain by coming up with the idea of writing the first script may not even end up being credited in the movie because it'll pass through so many hands. Things change all the time. It's a fluid business. What I would do if I was those people is sell that idea for that monster to somebody else and walk away and go, and at least we got the, you know, at least we got paid for it. Now, we no one ever got to saw it, but at least we got paid for it. Right. Well, I mean, it was used in the movie, so I don't think that they can sell it. It's just that you don't get to see it. And I guess their issue is that they do go through this all the time where they create maquettes for monsters that never make it to the final film. But in that case, you know, M. Night waited till the last possible moment after they'd yep. done all the work to finally say, I'm not going to really use it. Well, you know, it's, it's like uh, Terrence Malick, you know, who shoots uh, big elaborate movies with tons of movie stars in them and then cuts them all. It doesn't cut them all up, but, you know, Adrian Brody is not in the thin blue line or the, sure. uh, the thin red line, rather. Um, you know, uh, in the last couple of movies, there have been uh, Sean Penn in The Tree of Life uh, apparently had dialogue when they shot it. That all got cut out. Uh, um, you know, things happen uh, in terms of the creative process. It happens sometimes. That can be, you know, the original idea that sounds great in May when you first start shooting. Maybe by the time September rolls around, doesn't sound as good anymore or has morphed and changed, you know? And it happens. It happens. It's crappy for the people that have put in a lot of time and effort on things. But, uh, it, you know, you ultimately, I think, want to do what you think is, as a director, what you think is best for the film. And uh, sometimes it means, you know, ruffling people's feathers. Now, M. Night doesn't seem to mind ruffling people's feathers. And that's one of the things, again, that this Schadenfreude that has that seems to be everywhere in the press right now, uh, you know, seems to be coming from is that people are kind of delighting a little bit. And for my money, almost a little bit too much uh, about the failure of this movie. Gotcha. Well, um, what else has been happening in your world? Well, I'll tell you, I wanted to tell you, but I just got back from a week in New York. Um, and uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to tell you about uh, while uh, that I saw while I was there. Um, and I'll hold this up. This is a playbill from a thing called Steve Cohen, The Millionaire's Magician Chamber Magic. And I'm holding it up because it's not really online. He doesn't uh, advertise online. He is a close-up magician, so he does things like this close in front of you. That will blow your mind. And uh, he performs at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in the Lyndon B. Johnson room on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday, I don't know. And uh, uh, there's maybe 40 people in the room with you uh, when you see this thing. Uh, and he says, and he's been doing it for 13 years, says there's been a quarter of a million people through to see him, including some extraordinarily famous people. But he did things, and I know a little bit about this. I did magic shows. I, I did magic shows for kids' birthday parties, that kind of stuff. He did things uh, that I, that are just simply not possible. And, and explain, you know, describing them doesn't really do do anything justice. But um, it's a, it's an interesting show on a couple of levels. First of all, there's a dress code 
Men have to wear suits. Women have to be dressed. And there's a suggested dress code, what women should be wearing and stuff. If you're not wearing it, you will either not get in or you'll be seated at the very back of the room. <laughs> it's, it is old school. It's a very old school thing. He wears a tuxedo with tails. And when he finishes tricks, he does this. You know, it's very, you know, very kind of uh, old world. Uh, some of the, the tricks, there's a thing that he does here called uh, Think a Drink which uh, dates from the 1920s. It's an old vaudeville thing. Uh, and so there's a lot of it that feels very old world, but it's done with a level of proficiency. His name is Steve Cohen. It is done with a level of proficiency uh, and uh, um, uh, wonder that really, really uh, blew my mind. It's an hour and a half show. Uh, and as I say, he doesn't advertise online. You just call uh, a Yelp, I think, probably has him listed and that kind of thing, which is, I think, how we found out about it. Uh, but uh, go see this. The next time you're in New York, if you're looking for something that is completely uh, different than any other show currently performing, maybe anywhere else in the world, uh, you should go see this because it's really, really entertaining. Uh, it's funny, and you will be amazed. Uh, there were, he did things that I still have uh, absolutely no clue how they are uh, in any way possible. How... Um, you know, how, how he got that brick under that hat. I have no, when I was standing behind him about a, by about a foot, uh, how things like that happened, I have no idea. And, and just wonderful, just absolutely wonderful to, uh, to spend an hour and a half. And I liked wearing a suit to it. And I liked kind of, you know, the, the old school and the old worldness of it. I thought it was really entertaining. I think, you know, we, we went to see a number of Broadway shows. And uh, it used to be that people would get dressed up for, you know, that kind of thing as well, considering how much these things cost. Uh, Lucky Man, or Lucky Guy, the Tom Hanks show, we did not buy the top-of-the-line tickets, but we bought uh, tickets, but the top-of-the-line tickets are $350. So if you're going to pay that to see this, you can wear a damn tie while you're doing it. Um, and so I, I, but I loved it. I liked, I liked the old world kind of feel of it, the old sort of... Uh, um, uh, just the, 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 it was a good feeling to be in this room in a hotel that has so much history uh, and seeing something that felt like, you know, a show that you might have seen in 1935 by one of those old school, like Blackstone or some of those old school magicians. So it, that was, for me, uh, worth the trip. Like yeah, it's it's nice. I think one of the things we often lose with a lot of our entertainment today is a sense of mood and yeah. atmosphere because everything has to be so fast, so quick. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody wants you to skip to the end and just get to the punchline or whatever the joke may be. So it's nice that that you still have people who are kind of keeping alive uh, these anachronistic experiences. You could go in and pretend like you, you know, I love the movie Midnight in Paris just for that exact right. feeling. The, yeah. the idea of being able to step out the door and just seamlessly walk back into a time in which you have all these great personalities. But it sounds wonderful because one of the problems I've, I've encountered with people who are doing close-up magic is that when you, you hear of an act or they do their YouTube video, 99.9% .9 of it's just playing cards. Oh, no, this wasn't. Although, yeah. I, I will tell you, <laughs> I, the most amazing thing that he did, the finale of the show, is a trick with playing cards. And uh, when he, you know, he, he, he pulls them out and he says, this is a trick that will amaze, confound you, and possibly even terrify you. Shall I continue? And everyone, of course, is like, yes, continue. And he stops, you know, several times during the trick. 
and says, this is the terrifying part coming. Do you want me to continue? So yeah, let's do it. And while it didn't terrify anybody, it did blow people's minds. And uh, yeah, again, uh, that was another one. I was sitting in the front row. Andrew and I were sitting in the front row. And so he had us uh, come up frequently and stand with him. Two people from this side, two people from this side. On, on, uh, on either side of him, watching everything that he is doing. And in fact, for this last trick, and I don't want to tell you how it works in case you go see the show. I don't want to tell you right. what the trick is. But it involves two decks of cards. He barely touches them. Other people are cutting them and shuffling them and doing things like that. And he's, you know, showing how he can make the, you know, at first the top card on, on both decks be the same. Oh, they shuffled them and now the Ace of Clubs is both on, is on top. Uh, and then the trick gets more elaborate, more elaborate, more elaborate, more elaborate. And I, he gave me half of, there was a red deck and a blue deck. He gave me half the blue deck to keep in my pocket and he gave half the red deck to another person to keep in their pocket. And that is sort of the ultimate finale when we unveil the similarities of these two decks. And uh, it was mind-boggling. And again, you know, like card, great card magic uh, is great as long as it's not, or can, it can be just as amazing as sawing a woman in half. But I get what you mean, the, uh, you know, pick a card or any card kind of thing gets a little tired after a while. This guy, uh, the, the act is varied. I think he did two card tricks. One of which was twenty minutes long, but uh, but you know I, I think that he just did two, and the rest were there was mental magic, and he did a long that that think a drink. He had everybody in the room write down on a on a piece of paper their favorite drink, and then fold it up, pass it along to the end of the line, and then they were collected by an audience member. The audience member chose eight of them randomly, gave them to him. He gets rid of the rest of them, and he opens it up and says, oh, it's a, you know, a, a black Russian. And then he picks up this teapot, and he pours a black Russian out of the teapot. And then he puts that teapot down, and then he opens up the next one and says, oh, this person wants a strawberry milkshake. And he picks up that same teapot and pours it, and it's a strawberry milkshake that comes out. <laughs> and, he, and he was giving people the chance to taste them all, like the people that said, you know, yeah. who's very ridiculous. And he, does, he did that like eight or nine times. It was mind blowing. It was mind blowing. It was really cool. And you know, I, 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 you know, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a. Well, obviously, there's a trick to it. Uh, that's not a magic teapot. I don't want to know what the trick is. I was so tickled to be just sitting there and just be amazed by it, and and the theatricality of it all and everything. It was really. It was a good time. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, there. I think the issue is that. Um... Most people have encountered a bad magician. There are lots of people out there who are amateurs. They've just been training themselves, and it always seems to kind of be wonky. If you can get the experience of meeting someone like a master magician, it's just it's hard to find them. Where do they exist? So that's fantastic. Next time I'm going to New York, yeah, I have to go. Right to and, and, and the thing is, you know, it's, uh, it, it's really old world. And, like, you know, you're, you're – uh, you go to the Waldorf Astoria, and then you go down to the lower lobby, and the entire audience congregates in the lower lobby. And then uh, someone comes and says, go to the 35th floor, or whatever floor it's going to be in that day. And then you all go up, and then you're met by uh, a young woman wearing a long ball gown who escorts you in and seats you and sort of tells you the rules. And, that. and it was just, it was really fun. It was a really... Uh, it felt to me like a really New York-y kind of thing to do and sort of 
old world, you know, I can imagine that the Vanderbilts, had they been alive, or, you know, this guy, if he had been alive, the Vanderbilts would have gone to this. It was really, it was really, uh, it was really a special thing to do. It was fun. Oh, I love that. I love any experience that encourages people to kind of set aside the traditional apathy, all yeah. the defenses that people have towards being told the story, and instead yeah. to go in and just allow yourself to kind of trust the person who has set up this whole experience and go it, along with it and, and know that you're going to get that, that wonderful payoff. Well, it was interesting because the, uh, the audience wasn't all in right at the very beginning. I mean, they weren't used to, I don't think, you know, this idea of, you know, that this is very kind of, it's not uptight. That is not the word to use, but that there are rules and that there are, there's a way that to, that you have to, uh, hold yourself while you're in this room. And at first, some of the audience were like, oh, whatever, I can, you know, I can do whatever I want here. Well, you can't. And you'll enjoy the show more if you just surrender to it. And, uh, and it, but it's really worth it. Waldorf Astoria, check it out. It's called Chamber of Magic, Chamber Magic. And it's really great. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. I'm glad you, you find these things when you visit uh, places like New York. I feel personally it's important to go searching and hunting for the cool little experiences. They tend to be in all cities, all places, oh, rather yeah. than to land there and go, oh, you know, there's another Starbucks. There's another. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they're, they're, well and yeah, yeah. In New Orleans a few years ago, uh, we went to see another magic show. Uh, and this one was by Harry Anderson, who was Harry Stone on Night Court, right? Right. He lived in New Orleans. This was pre Katrina. And uh, it was about two weeks before Katrina, I think. And I had heard about this. He had a magic store, which wasn't open while we were there. But he also uh, does this magic show. And I'll tell you, that was a mind blower as well. It was in a like a speakeasy. He, it was his own club. There was a piano player. It was not quite as elegant as the one at the, uh, at the uh, Waldorf Astoria. But it was absolutely fun and, uh, and, and an experience, again, that, you know, was uh, completely of its time and moment, like in place. New Orleans, it, it felt to me like the kind of show that you could only see in New Orleans. No other kind of magician would exist. You know, it, it's not a show that you would see anywhere else. And it, and it was fantastic. It was fantastic as well. And in very different ways, much bigger, much larger show. And again, one of those experiences that seemed to exist within the time zone. It's like it's it's between not – it's like 13 o'clock. It's always one of the, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the door that's off to the side. That, that You know, it's just suddenly is this part of our, my reality? You're stepping into a different reality. I love that that kind of experience. Um, well, I wanted to talk um, briefly about two big things that are happening in the world of, of genre television. Uh, one, you may have noticed your Twitter feed exploded Sunday night uh, all about the Red Wedding on Listen, Game of Thrones. I, I, I have not watched Game of Thrones, and I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I haven't. But, man, I, like, it was it was nuts. My, my Twitter feed, which normally, like Walking Dead, yeah, absolutely, my Twitter feed would get overwhelmed by that. But in my Twitter feed, which there's no Game of Thrones talk on my Twitter feed, really, except maybe the odd person going, hey, that was a pretty cool show. It was an excellent episode. Exploded on Sunday night. And yeah. people were speechless. People were like, no music. There's nothing more to say. Because they didn't play music over the credits, apparently, this, uh, this uh, episode. No. So I wanted to, to, to talk about it briefly, just because I know there's a lot of interest about it. 
Um, and there are parallels between Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead in the sense that it's presenting a stark world of survival. All the characters behave in a zero-sum fashion, meaning nobody seems to be able to gain unless it's at somebody else's expense. Right. Uh, and it's very easy to fall in love with characters who, because they have faults, make one deadly move, and the next thing you know, that, that person's gone. There, there's right. no uh, hesitancy in this series to eliminate characters. Well, now that you said that, I'm going to just pull up a meme that I found that I thought was funny. It's uh, the writer of Game of Thrones saying, fun fact, George R. R. Martin survived solely on the tears of Game of Thrones fans. So. Yeah, no, very true. And I know there's another one floating around that says, um, Walking Dead. Whoops, just lost Richard Krause. Uh, that was it. You don't make fun of George R. R. Martin. You do. And the internet will just shut you down. That's it, right then and there. Uh, he'll be back briefly in a moment. I'm going to keep talking on to this point. But, and, and this is one he shouldn't hear. But there's a meme that says that The Walking Dead will get you to hate their characters before they kill them, whereas on Game of Thrones they'll make you love a character before they take them out. Oh, he's yeah. back. There you I'm go. back. I'm back. I came back. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, when they killed off him, again, spoiler alert, except if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you'll, you'll know this or a fan. Uh, but when they killed Sean Bean's character, a little while ago. I couldn't hear what you were saying while I was gone. So if oh, you yeah, said, I know. But uh, uh, when they killed that thing, that character, everyone was like, oh, can you believe it? They killed off one of the most well-liked characters, probably the biggest star in terms of name power on the show. So unexpected, awesome, keeps you on the edge of your seat. Apparently, the episode on Sunday was like that times 20. Correct, yes. Yeah, in that it was, um, there wasn't just one actor that, became unemployed that night a pile of actors became unemployed uh and again just the severity in terms of of doing the the, the deaths was yeah. very very stark very very severe and the odd thing about it is that unlike the walking dead which decided they weren't going to follow the source material they're going to pretend it's an alternate universe have their own storylines that's not the case with game of thrones they are almost following it to the letter there are a couple of changes but they're following the books so this was a case that those who'd read the books knew exactly what was happening. Right. Uh, a lot of people that we know, like Seamus O'Regan, who's a big fan of the books, knew what was happening. There was already a hashtag for Red right. Wedding, those floating around before the episode aired. Yet it did not have an impact in terms of the shock value. Even if you knew what was happening, the way that they visualized it was just, <gasps> you know, all the blood was just drained right out of your face. Yeah, well, this is, this is what I hear. And, and it, it made me think of, uh, the scene in uh, The Devils, the movie that I wrote a book about called The Rape of Christ Scene, which people have heard about. People have read my book who hadn't seen the movie before they read the book because the movie is very difficult to see. And I described that scene in, in you know, pretty grim detail uh, in the book. I let you know exactly what you're in for. And people would still call me or email me later on going, I couldn't believe what I just saw. Once I, like I'd read about it, you warned me, but it wasn't enough. And that's how it sounds to me like the Red Wedding scene was similar to that. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between reading about something in a book and then actually seeing actors of a certain yeah. caliber bring it to life. And, uh, I mean, you're, you're asking people, people to create these characters, to live with these characters day in, day out, 
and then submit themselves to to horrible death scenes. I mean, it's not a case where someone gets to sort of put a shawl around them and watch the sun go off in the distance. No, I mean, this is this is very severe. It's very awful what, what happens to these characters. But there was an interesting thing that they did that I wanted to kind of speak to for any fans that are watching. In that, in the book, before they, they come up to the castle for this big grand wedding, uh, the main character, Rob Stark, has a wolf. All Many of the, killed, the children in the series, they all have wolf companions. Right. These wolves often are the ones that protect them. They're often the ones that know what's going on, you know, that animal bond that we all like to have. As they approach the castle, for what they think is going to be a positive thing happening in their lives, the wolf refuses to go into the castle. And they're all arguing, and they eventually decide to ignore the damn wolf, put it off to the side. It's bothering everybody, and they go into the castle anyways. And so there's this brief moment in the story where they realize as they're dying, oh, yeah, the wolf was trying to tell us something, and we, we ignored that. I thought given how much fans love the wolves and love that connection, it was odd that they didn't include that in the, the TV series. Oh. They show the wolves in it being locked up, being unhappy that they can't get in to, to kind of save their, their masters, as it were. But they don't really show that one key moment. I was disappointed because I thought, well, that speaks to the fact that you've got this lovable character, but there's, they have faults. This character was so convinced he was a good guy and untouchable that he ignored the, the, the very instinct that's in your head that tells you that something is wrong. I thought that was you know odd that they left it out, but I realized why. Because what they did was instead they allowed um, the actress who plays Rob Stark's mother deliver that element instead. Right. They're in the middle of the wedding, uh, and the camera decides to focus on her and her facial expression, and she's the one who starts to realize that there's something horribly wrong. She's right. the one who hears that there's a song that's being played that's about a big tragedy that happens to a family. She's the one who notices that the doors are suddenly being locked and everybody. She's the one who notices that uh, the guy next to her, who's supposed to be a friend, has chain mail under his clothes, that there's something awful happening. And it's beautiful the way that they did that. They allowed the camera to just rest on her and allow her to do all the work of acting exactly what's happening in her face. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the comeuppance, the realization, the everything is all spelled out within her face, the way the blood drains from her skin, the way that the, the tears begin in her eyes, the choke in her voice, as she then starts to try to move to, to hopelessly do something against it. And I thought that choice was so beautiful of the people who were doing Game of Thrones that they went that direction. You know, I wouldn't have thought to go that way, but I thought it was great what they did. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes stuff that works on the page just clearly doesn't work, you know, when you visualize it. And, and they are two completely different mediums. So, you know, maybe having the wolves warn them or do whatever it was, maybe they shot it that way once and went, oh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't look good enough or it's not dramatic enough or, or you know, could be a hundred reasons why, you know. Uh, why they wouldn't use it, but yeah, I, you know, the, the Twitter reaction to this uh, was enough to make me think, you know what, I really should start watching this, and I know that I should be watching this. Um, it's hard because there are so many shows out there at this point in time. Well, there are, and, and also for me, because I watch things for a, a, a living, sometimes, occasionally, uh, you know, it just feels like work to me when everyone's saying, oh, you got to watch, you got to watch this. And I know it's going to be an ongoing thing or it's going to be a thing that I have to marathon or something. It starts to feel like a lot, uh, a, a, a lot like work, you know? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just trying to find them. I saw a couple of memes that really kind of encapsulated <laughs> all this. I'm just looking for them now. Well, you know, it's it's a series that's very uh, rich. It's very detailed. Uh, it's based on sword and sorcery. That's not something that typically most people that I know who aren't into that is something I would recommend. Uh, right. But it's also, if you haven't read the books, my feeling is it would be a hard story to follow. Apparently not, because we have friends who haven't read the books, like Lindsay Van Stone, that seems yeah. to be following along perfectly well. Uh, yeah. But for you, I think the... the what is missing and what I'm starting to, to take away from the series is being so great because this was a series that people used to make fun. They still do of the amount of nudity. Right. Uh, are there boobs in this episode? And there is a lot of nudity, full scale, everything you, you can see. But what has stand out about the series is their use of experienced veteran actors. I've talked about Charles Dance is just, oh, Diana Rigg. I, who, who, I love Diana Rigg. Scene stealing, uh, the, the number of scenes that they've given her, the opportunity that they've given her to play this matronly character, uh, to deliver the kind of lines that she has, that for me is the reason why I keep tuning in. Uh, again, and this actress that they, 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 their confidence to be able to say, we have an actor that we can just put the camera on and they will just through performance, what's happening in their face, say everything we need to say without us right. having to include it from the book or include the lines, that's been exceptional. Just that would be the one thing I would say to anybody who's wondering if they're missing out, that's what you're missing out on. Well, uh, I'll tell you, this is a Diana, the Diana Rigg uh, that I fell in love with was that Diana uh, Rigg from the Avengers when she was uh, Emma Peel on the Avengers. And um, they apparently named her uh, Emma Peel because when they were looking for an actress and they finally found her, they, they wanted someone with man appeal or M appeal. And that's where the name M appeal came from. But that's what she, that's what she looked like then. And just to remind people uh, what she looks like now on the show. And uh, this is her on the show now. Right. Let me find her here for you. <laughs> well, I mean, she was, she, that's her on the show now. there she is. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I love, I mean, she's like uh, Maggie Smith on Downton Abbey, all that kind of thing. Like the, the old pro that can, uh, that knows how to, you know, steal a scene from uh, everybody else on screen. Well, I guess the difference being, is that, and that why I, I think Diana Rigg has really stood out, is that typically those characters, the, the elderly matronly characters tend to be um, argumentative or they tend to be entertaining and they're very uptight, as it were. Whereas Diana Rigg, even though she may not look like her younger self, gets to be the younger self still with amidst all the, the wrinkles and the, the, the shroud that she's wearing. Right. Her... Um, the dialogue that they give her is very Shakespearean and that it's full of, of vulgar jokes and lots of barbs and just the way that she delivers them effortlessly, just beautifully uh, is just, just enough to watch. I could watch an entire episode just of her doing that. Right. Uh, it's been fantastic. Well, that you bring that up uh, that you could just watch one actor do something incredible, almost Shakespearean, uh, I wanted to uh, talk about this a little bit. I saw this. This is uh, Macbeth uh, that I watched on Broadway uh, last week, and that's Alan Cumming. And the, the interesting thing about this production of Macbeth is that Alan Cumming 
plays 99.9% of all the characters. No way! <laughs> and so you have, uh, at the very beginning, it's set, uh, not exactly in modern day, but it's probably set in the, the 1950s, maybe, something like that. And he's in uh, an insane asylum or some kind of sanitarium of some sort. And so when you first meet him, He's sitting on a gurney, and and they're taking uh, blood samples, and they're they're doing things. They've got a little evidence bag that they're putting bloody clothes into, and that sort of thing. They change him into more hospital gear, uh, and then the the doctor and the nurse leave. Although occasionally you see them up in a window that's behind them and observing while they're observing him, and then he begins to tell the story, and he plays. All the characters, including Lady Macbeth, and there is a love scene between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, uh, and it's it's all done. Uh, I mean, it's it's obviously very theatrical the way it's done, but you know, after the first five minutes of of watching him, when you finally get sort of your your wits about you as to what's happening, it starts to seem very natural, and so you know the character Banquo. Uh, always has an apple in his hand. And so whenever whenever he's Franco, he reaches out the he's got an apple. So that signifies that his female characters speak in a much more feminine way than, you know, than, they, than Macbeth does, for instance. And it is a tour de force. It's 100 minutes of Alan Cumming on stage playing all the characters in Macbeth. And it's, uh, it's so unique. Um, I can't... Uh, you know, well, I would recommend it highly. I think it's closing now. I think it's uh, or it's closing in a week or so. So if you're if you're there soon, go see it. But um, he plays uh, Macbeth, uh, Lady Macbeth, the three witches, King Duncan, Banquo, uh, Macduff, Malcolm, and uh, the son of Banquo. And uh, it's really something. It's really uh, an incredible. Uh, uh, a piece of work, and if you have the chance to see it, you owe it to yourself to see to to see him flip effortlessly from character to character. Uh, I was uh, absolutely gobsmacked by it, and uh, sitting across the aisle from me in the next seat, literally, but across the aisle uh, was Patrick Stewart. Wow! Is of course Alan Cummings' co-star in the X Men movies, sure, and. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he was there uh, watching it, and it was interesting because he was wearing glasses, and he uh, had his program out, and he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out a second pair of glasses, which he put over the first pair of glasses and read like this, and then when the play started, he took both pairs off. I've never seen anyone do that before. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I remember when Alan Cumming came out, they used to call him Alan Up and Cumming. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, I'll tell you, he's, uh, you know, uh, this is the first time I've seen him. Uh, I had met him before. I had interviewed him before. Uh, it's the first time I've seen him uh, on stage, uh, live on stage. And, man, it was uh, it was something. Uh, you know, it's it's not exactly a one-man show. That's why I say he plays like 99.9% of the characters, because I think the other two actors, the, the doctor and the nurse, uh, or the orderly and the nurse, uh, have maybe four lines between them. And they're they're there looking at him and and responding in some ways, but but they're not uh, they're not particularly verbal, whereas he is, and it's really something to see. I also saw while well, we're just talking about one person shows. This is I'll Eat You Last, uh, Bette Midler, and Sue, she plays Sue Mengers, and Sue Mengers was one of the Hollywood 
um, uh, uh, agents of the 60s, 70s. She was like her clients were people like Barbara Streisand. She had huge big clients. And uh, she was known to be an outrageously spoken. She, uh, you know, apparently she originated the line, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bette Midler, I'll tell you, like, again, this is what an hour and a half long, and it, it opens with Bette Midler sitting in a living room set on a couch, which she stays and doesn't get up from for about uh, an hour and 29 minutes. And then when the play is over, she gets up and says a couple of lines and walks off stage. So it's her seated for an hour and a half, essentially, talking to the audience. And uh, it's a knockout. It's, uh, it's funny and uh, entertaining and uh, just uh, really something to see. You know, when you see someone that can keep an audience here, it was probably, uh, I don't know, a thousand people there, eight, nine, a thousand, a hundred and nine, or a thousand people. And... It had everybody completely transfixed for the entire time. So that's some kind of charisma. Do you think that they will ever release video of any of these productions? I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't going to get the chance to go to New York. Yeah. These kinds of things. Is that something you've ever heard of? Uh, I just recently tracked down a copy of Richard Burton on right. Broadway doing Hamlet. Um, I, I do think that uh, most of these shows – uh, or so a lot of these shows are shot for archival purposes. Um, you know, when they're, they're not, it's not uh, elaborately shot, you know, uh, from what I've heard. And I haven't seen anything recent, but certainly, uh, you know, you do. I've seen footage of, like, Richard Burton and Olivier and people like that on Broadway. And it usually looks like it's one camera in the balcony just shooting the entire stage. Right. And they, they just have, like, they have it for uh, posterity, you know, but not necessarily, uh, um, you know, shot in a way that that is for television or the big screen right well and right. i mean the the few kind of plays that i've managed to hunt down like the gin game starring uh jessica tandy and hume cronin which is fantastic yeah. uh, they're, they're almost sort of you have to kind of know about them to sort right. of find copies uh it's like another suspect video adventure you have to go off and try to track right. these things down but i'm wondering if you know if you had ever come across these things uh, yourself because i would love to see the alan cumming production there's also in england benedict cumberbatch did an interesting production of frankenstein where it's just him and another actor and each night they would switch roles right so you'd come in one night and benedict would be dr frankenstein and the next night he'd be the the, the, the creature yeah, johnny miller was the other guy right? right yeah and you hear about these things and it's like ah oh. uh, i think the other holy grail i would love to track down are the script readings yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Jason Reitman script readings. Yeah, where, yeah. Where, where they do uh, like the Graduate and you know older movies and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And they get younger actors to come in and, and revisit those parts. I mean, those are legendary. I there has to be a copy or recording of some of those floating around. I don't know. I'm sure there is. I mean, I, I Frankenstein. There probably is because I know that they showed it at Cineplex, right? They they did. Uh, they did, uh, you know, those like live from the Met, those kind of things. Only they had they had uh, um, Frankenstein. Now, I I don't know if they're live or not, but they're I bet they definitely showed it. So it's 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 been immortalized somewhere. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I have an interesting question for you. Again, we're going to talk about another series that you are not following, but I I've, I'm trying to find a way that I can engage you in it, anyways. Uh, the other big geek explosion that's been going on has been around Doctor Who. Right, right. Now he's leaving. He's leaving. 
Um, now, here's the interesting part, because I was going to actually talk about this before, because <laughs> the, the last season episode just ended, and you've spoken in the past about cliffhangers. Yeah. And how there are good cliffhangers on TV and how there are bad cliffhangers and how you use them. Well, the last episode of Doctor Who was probably the penultimate cliffhanger. Right. Uh, because it wasn't just a cliffhanger for that episode. It wasn't just a cliffhanger for the story that represented that season. It wasn't just a cliffhanger for the new Doctor Who. No, if you had watched Doctor Who 50 years ago, right, right, right. this would have been that kind of a cliffhanger. And to just really drive the nail, the screw right into your thumb, as you get to the end of the episode and you're beginning to realize that they're heading towards a cliffhanger, they end with the words, <laughs> uh, to be continued, November 23rd. So not uh, next week. 2023? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So everybody right now who, who is a Doctor Who fan is hanging off of this cliff and will have to wait till November 23rd at the end of this year before it can pick up and kind of move on. Which is just well, absolutely, it, yeah. And, but, and, but isn't so November 23rd, so it's a weekly thing. So then they'll do like a handful of episodes and then it's done for another season, right? Is that it? Correct, yes. They end on Christmas. Don't, isn't that like the big thing yeah. of the Christmas episode? Well, there, aren't, there aren't as many episodes in a, a Doctor Who series as there are in other television series. Yeah. Every other television series, you, you're kind of spoiled in the sense that you may have 20 episodes to a season. Doctor yeah. Who's usually about 12 or 14 and that's it. Right, right. Uh, which is always painful because then it's a long wait for the next one. So for them to kind of make it a, a cliffhanger where, man, you're going to have to wait till the end of the year to find out. And the way that they did it was fantastic. Um, in fact, I'm going to be asking you about this whole idea that they're going to launch a new Doctor Who because, and again, spoilers, uh, we're going to get to to what they showed at the end of that episode. It was amazing because they handed out copies of the episodes to the members of the press but left off the last three minutes. Right for just that reason. And so as they get to the end of this episode, they do the most amazing thing. They suddenly switch into Quentin Tarantino mode. <laughs> you, you hear, <laughs> you see this silhouette of a man wearing what looks like, a, almost like a duster jacket from a Sergio Leone film, but we're just seeing the back of him. And you hear this raspy voice say a few lines. And then as he turns around, the camera zooms in close for a little Sergio Leone on the eyes. And we realize it's John Hurt. Right, right. And it says next to him, and introducing John Hurt as the doctor. And everybody just goes absolutely yeah. wild. <clears throat> and so this leads to the, the latest news that they've released, which is that Matt Smith, the current doctor, uh, has decided, I don't know if he's decided, he's leaving the show. Whether it was his decision or somebody else's, we don't know, but he will no longer play the doctor. And so now there's a lot of speculation as to who's going to be the 12th doctor. Right. I initially thought, well, they, they just introduced him. His name's John Hurt, <laughs> which I would be fine with. John Hurt is a fine actor. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and certainly deserves the... You might imagine Doctor Who to be, but... Yes, well, and, and the, the, the point being that the original Doctor, when they started off in the late 1950s and 1960s, was played by William Hartnell, an elderly man. And right. it's over the years that he has gradually become a younger and younger person, mainly because it's more appealing to audiences to see a younger man take right. on that role. But anyway, so this leads to the question I want to involve you in, which is that a lot of fans now see this as an opportunity for them to introduce a female Doctor Who 
or even a black Doctor Who or an Asian Doctor Who. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've heard Idris Elba's name thrown around in terms of Doctor Who, um, which I think would be terrific. He's an amazing actor. He's a, he's a great actor. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Doctor Who right now, I think, and again, I, I don't watch the show. I haven't, I haven't watched it. I've not a, a been following it. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a reason why you don't want to change the Doctor too much, but my understanding of it, uh, is that he sort of jumps from person to person. That's how you can change him every now and again. And it seems to me likely that you could easily have him jump into, uh, you know, any form of any person on earth, any race, creed, color, any of that sort of thing. And it, w it should make sense, you know. Uh, and right now, frankly, the show is as popular right now as I think it has probably ever been. You know, it seems that's my, I'm certainly hearing more about it now than I have for a very long time anyway. Right. There might have been a Doctor Who heyday in the 60s and early 70s or something that I wasn't around for. But but now it seems very popular. It seems like a show that so many people are following that I think it would be a really interesting thing for them to shake it up and, and do something that the show has never done before, which is have an African-American Doctor Who or, or a woman, uh, a female Doctor Who or something like that, and really uh, make a statement with it. You know, we're, 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 we are, you know, uh, millennials, they say, are moving into what will be sort of a, a post-racial era, you know, that they don't care about race uh, particularly. But still, I, 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 I'm not sure that that's, uh, this is what I've read, so I'm, I'm not sure that, it's, that I'm 100% on board with that uh, in terms of it being reality. But I think that moves like that could really, uh, you know, make a strong statement and not damage the show in any way. Yes, I think um, from the business of Doctor Who, the issue that they're going to have to try to deal with is that um, Doctor Who maintains its large numbers as long as it's a mainstream show. Right. And specifically, uh, one of the, the, the um, limitations that's been placed on the showrunners who've taken over the show is that they have to remember it's still a kid's show at heart. Right. That right from the very beginning, the, the show's main concept was that this was going to be appealing to uh, kids and tweens first, and then it would pull in the adults second. Right. And that's something that those who have been running the show keep trying to remind fans when they go, man, that was kind of silly, this episode. And they go, well, you have to keep in mind, we're writing this for kids first, and then right. we're writing it for you. Uh, and so when they've tried to introduce or change things around, that's always been the major conflict, where it has to be kind of family appropriate. They have introduced characters in the past, like uh, Captain Jonathan Harkness, who was bisexual. Mm -hmm. uh, they currently have um, two characters uh, who live in Victorian times that are detectives and an assistant who seem to have a lesbian affair, even though one is reptilian in nature. Uh, they have kind of played around with those concepts, and they've even had a couple of female time lords come into play. They've also introduced the idea that the Doctor might have romances, something right. that hasn't happened in the past. But I guess, you know, the, the, the issue is just how far you go before you rock the boat, and it no longer becomes the mainstream hit that it was. Right. The issue... I, go ahead. Well, no, I did, I, I, I'm not sure, though. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, these days it's such a risky idea, though, to change the race of somebody. I mean... You know, just the very nature of of uh, Doctor Who is that he changes. You know, he doesn't always look the same. Uh, is is something that that would lend itself perfectly to this? Yes, 
and that's that's very true that and that's and partly because the doctor who franchise has always been very intelligent by nature it has been willing to kind of do the things that kick against the formula he's a character who does not walk around with a gun for example uh often tries to solve right. things through you know knowledge through science often tries to to give a chance to the the enemy of the episode the the you know i'll take you away you could go live on another planet you don't have to bother these kinds of people there has always been that that freedom and sensibility to it i agree but i would say that there are some things that kind of help define the character for who he is that although he does change there are things that tend to remain consistent from one generation to the next and i'll show you one of the the, the things that's interesting about the current Doctor Who, here he is, is that this actor, there he is, Matt Smith, uh, one of the reasons that the showrunners liked him is because he has an odd-looking face. Yep. He yep. was specifically chosen because uh, um, Moffat said that he looked like someone who had been assembled by a bunch of old men trying to remember a young man from memory. Right, right, right. And he has uh, the facial features that kind of hint towards someone who might have been uh, an elderly person in a previous regeneration that you know he he looks like an amalgamation of a bunch of other people and so i get the feeling that they may want to kind of continue with that kind of line of thinking the other thing i i, I sort of realize is that when i think about this i think about well what would you do if you changed other iconic characters if you had a black james bond for example or you know uh, imagine what would happen if you had a female indiana jones Right. If Indiana Jones suddenly became Indiana Jane, uh, and I just put up on the the screen a, a photograph of a woman, a cosplayer posing as Indiana Jane. But you know, and and yeah, absolutely. Like I, I get that. You know, you can't really go messing about too much with Spock or any character like that because they are so identifiable as what they are. But Doctor Who, as I said, the the very nature of it is that he changes. Correct. And so, and, and, you know, and so the, it seems to me to be uh, kind of two different things, you know, like uh, Indiana Jones uh, is, will always be Harrison Ford. And, you know, Spock will always be, you know, a pointy eared logical Vulcan. And, you know, and, and if you have uh, a female playing Spock, well, it's not Spock anymore. Because Spock is is you know is a, a narrow there's a narrow parameter as to what that character can be and should be, um, in just in terms of, of the way it is. If you want to introduce other female Vulcans, more power to you. But but Spock that doesn't happen with Spock, you know. Whereas Doctor Who, it seems to me, it, it is it is uh, the, the door has been left open because of the nature of the character. Right. Well. I would say, though, that there's more power to inventing new characters that kind of achieve the same goal. So although it wouldn't be right, in my mind, to have an Indiana Jane, um, you know, having Katniss, for example, who kind of embodies that same task of trying to create somebody that's like Indiana Jones, that fulfills the same adventure requirements and the same sense of, of heroism, but embodies all the, the, the elements that you would want from the female character, or even um, the, the first woman who did that, which is Lara Croft. And yeah, yeah. although, you know, there was, has been some debate over her value as a, as a heroine over the years, she did kind of embody the sense of being a female Indiana Jones without having to be Indiana Jones. Right. And she's just been reimagined, partly thanks to the success of Katniss, as being something that's a little more acceptable to, to young girls out there. Right. Uh, 
I kind of feel that, yes, I want a female Time Lord, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the Doctor, that it might actually be more powerful if they could find a way to create an all-new female character that explores time and the universe and, and, and science and things like that. Right, right. Maybe so. You know, I, 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 but then it's not Doctor Who anymore. You know what I mean? It's Doctor Who, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's something else. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I uh, Star Trek uh, is something that has come and gone. You know, there have been, you know, a few years here and there where there hasn't been a Star Trek show uh, with Spock, uh, um, you know, uh, in, you know, in, in the lead. And so um, I think that when he comes back, they you know, obviously, I think Zachary Quinto has brought something a little different to it than Leonard Nimoy did. And, and I feel like that's okay. Um, Doctor Who, I don't know. I, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a Doctor Who fan. So I, I you know, I, I don't really have uh, strong, strong feelings about this one way or the other, except to say that because he changes, he should be able to change into anything. Well, the, the, he wants okay. to be a lizard for a season. Let him be a lizard for a season. You know. Right. Well, the the change isn't that he jumps from one body to another. The change is that it's almost like the equivalent of aging. Right. Uh, is that the the cellular structure of his body kind of recombines itself. He he's still yeah, the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so even though his his personality and his physical features can kind of change, I, I do feel that over the years. There are certain things that make the Doctor who the Doctor is, uh, and they tend to be this geeky British white guy. And right. even though you could have other actors come in and take the role, you kind of may lose the essence of what that character is. Right. Even though it would be interesting to see, I'm not sure how well it would play. Right. Um, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I I'm, I'm actually would be happy if, if John Hurt got to continue to play the man for a season. There's been a hint that although they're calling him the Doctor, he's the one that um, – did something really bad in the universe. And right. the doctor has disowned that uh, generation and saying, well, he had to do something, but I'm not calling him the doctor. He didn't get to play that role. Uh, either way, seeing John Hurt, I don't have a photo here, but with his wonderful facial hair that he has, it's right. very eccentric and just looks fantastic. I hope that he gets a lot of airplay uh, as they come back from that horrible cliffhanger they left us hanging off of recently. Well, uh, you talk about uh, geeky British guys. Uh, I will just wrap up with this. I found this in New York at a secondhand uh, record store. This is uh, from 1978, and it's a German pressing. Of, <laughs> uh, but look at this on the stiff record label, which is so cool. That, uh, you know, my, my head blew apart a little bit when I found that on stiff records right there. Elvis Costello, Less Than Zero, and Allison. And was that just sitting in like a, a bin full of other albums you had to sift through or? No, this was a, a, a rare record shop. I looked at a lot of places to find this. I was actually trying to find uh, the LP uh, the, on Stiff Records from 1977. And I just, it just simply does not exist in New York as far as I can tell. I'm sure it's there somewhere. I couldn't lay my hands on it. And uh, so I, this was one of the last places that I went to. And they had a wall of 45s there are thousands thousands upon thousands of 45s and i said to the guy i'm looking for the lp blah 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 77 i gave him all the details he goes i know i don't have that i said well do you have any of the singles and he went i think i do and literally went boom there it is <laughs> it was the craziest thing but the guys you know uh, was about a thousand years old 
And I think that uh, is he's probably just worked in this place forever. And he just, he has a grip on what's in there, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, so I found it. And uh, it was literally, I had, I had looked for, you know, a week. This was on the last day we were there that I found it. So that was uh, an exciting uh, time. I'm just looking to see here if I've got it as a, I can't find it. Maybe next week I will show you a, uh, a better picture of it. But right there, that was very exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure to go to our website, hayallyouzombies.com. Give us any kind of feedback, anything that you're interested in checking out. Uh, leave us comments, click likes, subscribe, all that kind of cool stuff.